18. I doubt a significant part of its history in that procession of islands formed by Iceland, the Faroes, Shetland, Orkneys, Great Britain, Ireland and the Channel Isles, whether it was the navigator of ancient Armorica steering his leather-sailed boat to the shores of Caesar's Britain, or the modern Breton fisherman pulling in his nets off the coasts of distant Iceland, the dim outline of mountainous Cyprus, seen against a faraway horizon from the slopes of Lebanon, beckoned the Phoenician shipmaster thither to trade and to colonize. Just as the early Etruscan merchants passed from their busy ironworks on the island of Elba over the narrow strait to visible Corsica, it was on the eastern side of Greece, with its steep embayments, its valleys opening out to the Aegean, with its 483 islands scattered thickly as stars in the sky, and its milky way of the cyclones leading to the deep, rich soils of the Asia Minor coast, with its sea made contact with all the stimulating influences and dangers emanating from the Asiatic littoral. That Hellenic history played its impressive drama. Here was developed the spirit of enterprise that carried colonies to far western Sicily and Italy, while the western or rear side had a confined succession of local events, scarce worthy the name of history. Neither mountain walled Epirus nor Corsaira had in Hellenic settlement in 735 BC at a date when the eastern Greeks had reached the Ionian coast of the Aegean and had set up a lonely group of colonies even on the Bay of Naples, turning to America. We find that the Antilles received their population from the only two tribes, first the Arawaks and later the Caribs, who ever reached the indented northern coast of South America between the Isthmus of Panama and the mouth of the Orinoco. Here the small islands of the Venezuelan coast, often in sight, lured these peoples of river and shore to open sea navigation, and drew them first to the Windward Isles, then northward step by step or island by island, to Haiti and Cuba. In all these instances, Offshore islands tempt to expansion and thereby add to the historical importance of the nearby coast. Frequently, however, they achieve the same result by offering advantageous footholds to enterprising voyagers from remote lands, and become the medium for infusing life into hither doodad coasts. The long monotonous littoral of East Africa from Cape Guadafoy to the Cape of Good Hope, before the planting here of Portuguese way stations on the road to India in the 16th century was destitute of historical significance, except that stretch opposite the islands of Zanzibar and Pemba, which Arab merchants in the 10th century appropriated as the basis for their slave and ivory trade. The East Indies and Ceylon had been so many offshore stations whence, first through the Portuguese, and later through the Dutch and English, European influences percolated into southeastern Asia. Asia, with its island-strewn shores, has diffused its influences over a broad zone of the Western Pacific, and through the agency of its active restless malaise, even halfway across that ocean, in contrast, the western coast of the Americas, a stretch nearly 10.000 miles from Tierra del Fuego to the Aleutian chain, has seen its aboriginal inhabitants barred from seaward expansion by the lack of offshore islands, and its entrance upon the historical stage till late till recent times. In general it can be said that islandless seas attain a later historical development than those whose expanse is rendered less forbidding by hospitable fragments of land. This factor, as well as its location remote from the old and stimulating civilization of Syria and Asia Minor, operated to retard the development of the western Mediterranean long after the eastern basin had reached its zenith. Coast-dwelling peoples exhibit every degree of intimacy with the water from the amphibian life of many Malay tribes who love the wash of the waves beneath their pile-built villages, to the Nana Bushmen who inhabit the dune-walled coast of southwest Africa, and know nothing of the sea, 
in the resulting nautical development the natural talents and habits of the people are of immense influence, but these in turn have been largely determined by the geographical environment of their previous habitat, whether inland or coastal, and by the duration and time, as well as the degree and necessity, of their contact with the sea. The Phoenicians, who, according to their traditions as variously interpreted, came to the coast of Lebanon either from the Persian Gulf or the Red Sea, brought to their favorable maritime location a different endowment from that of the land-trading Philistines, who moved up from the south to occupy the sand-choked shores of Palestine, or from that of the Jews, bred to the grasslands of Mesopotamia and the gardens of Judea, who only at rare periods in their history forced their way to the sea. The unindented coasts stretching from Cape Carmel south to the Nile Delta never produced a maritime people and never achieved maritime importance, till a race of experienced mariners like the Greeks planted their colonies and built their harbor moles on the shores of Sharon and Philistia, so on the west face of Africa, from the Senegal southward along the whole Guinea coast to Danguela, all evidences of kinship and tradition among the local tribes point to an origin on the interior plains and a recent migration seaward so that no previous schooling enabled them to exploit the numerous harbors along this littoral, as did later the seabred Portuguese and English. Not only the accessibility of the coast from the sea, but also its habitability enters as a factor into its historical importance. A sandy desert coast, like that of southwest Africa and much of the Peruvian littoral, or a sterile mountain face, like that of lower California, excludes the people of the country from the sea. Saldanha Bay the one good natural harbor on the west coast of Cape Colony, is worthless even to the enterprising English, because it has no supply of fresh water. The slowness of the ancient Egyptians to take the short step forward from river to marine navigation can undoubtedly be traced to the fact that the sour swamps, barren sand dunes, and pestilential marshes on the seaward side of the Nile Delta must have always been sparsely populated as they are today, and that a broad stretch of sandy waste formed their Red Sea littoral. On the other hand, where the hem of the continents is fertile enough to support a dense population, a large number of people are brought into contact with the sea, even where no elaborate articulation lengthens the shoreline, when the steaming humanity of a garden littoral is barred from landward expansion by desert or mountain, or by the already overcrowded population of its own hinterland, it wells over the brim of its home country, no matter how large, and overflows to other lands across the seas. The congested population of the fertile and indented coast of southern China, though not strictly speaking a seafaring people, found an outlet for their redundant humanity and their commerce in the tropical Sunda Islands. By the 6th century their trading junks were doing an active business in the harbors of Java, Sumatra, and Malacca, they had even reached Ceylon and the Persian Gulf, and a little later were visiting the great focal market of Aden at the entrance of the Red Sea. A strong infusion of Chinese blood improved the Malay stock in the Sunda Islands, and later in North Borneo and certain of the Philippines, whither their traders and emigrants turned in the 14th century, when they found their opportunities curtailed in the archipelago to the south by the spread of Islam. Now the yellow peril threatens the whole circle of these islands from Luzon to Sumatra. Similarly India, first from its eastern, later from its western coast, sent a stream of traders, Buddhist priests and colonists to the Sunda Islands, and especially to Java, as early as the 5th century of our era, once Indian civilization, religion, and elements of the Sanskrit tongue spread to Borneo, Sumatra, Bali, Lombok, and even to some smaller islands among the Maluka group. 
the Hindus became the dominant commercial nation of the Indian Ocean long before the great development of Arabian sea power, and later shared the trade of the East African coast with the merchants of Oman and Yemen. Today they form a considerable mercantile class in the ports of Muscat, Aden, Zanzibar, Pemba, and Natal, on the coasts of large fertile areas like China and India. However, maritime activity comes not as an early, but as an eventual development, assumes not a dominant, but an incidental historical importance, the coastlands appearing early on the maritime stage of history, and playing a brilliant part in the drama of the sea, have been habitable, but their tillable fields have been limited either in fertility, as in New England, or in amount, as in Greece, or in both respects, as in Norway but if blessed with advantageous location for international trade and many or even a few fairly good harbors, such coasts tend to develop wide maritime dominion and colonial expansion. Great fertility in a narrow coastal belt barred from the interior serves to concentrate and energize the maritime activities of the nation. The 20-mile-wide plain stretching along the foot of the Lebanon range from Antioch to Cape Carmel is even now the Garden of Syria. In ancient Phoenician days its abundant crops and vines supported luxuriant cities and a teeming population, which sailed and traded and colonized to the Atlantic outskirts of Europe and Africa. Moreover, their maritime ventures had a wide sweep as early as 1100 BC quite similar to the Phoenician littoral and almost duplicating its history, is the Oman seaboard of eastern Arabia. Here again a fertile coastal plain sprinkled with its hundred villages, etched with a few tolerable harbors and backed by a high mountain wall with an expanse of desert beyond, produced a race of bold and skillful navigators, who in the Middle Ages used their location between the Persian Gulf and the Arabian Sea to make themselves the dominant maritime power of the Indian Ocean. With them maritime expansion was typically wide in its sweep and rapid in its development. Even before Mohammed's time they had reached India, but under the energizing influences of Islam, by 758 they had established a flourishing trade with China for which they set up way stations or staple points in Canton and the Sunda Islands, first as voyagers and merchants, then as colonists. They came, bringing their wares and their religion to these distant shores. Marco Polo, visiting Sumatra in 1260, tells us the coast population was Saracen, but this was probably more in religion than in blood. Oman ventures, seconded by those of Yemen, reached as far south as east. The trading stations of Madisha and Barawa were established on the Somali coast of East Africa in 908, and Kilwa 750 miles further south in 925. In the 17th century the Oman Arabs dislodged the intruding Portuguese from all this coast belt down to the present northern boundary of Portuguese East Africa. Even so late as 1850 their capital, Muscat, sent out fine merchantmen that did an extensive carrying trade and might be seen loading in the ports of British India, in Singapore, Java, and Mauritius. Brittany's active part in the maritime history of France is due not only to its ragged contour, its inshore and offshore islands, its forward location on the Atlantic which brought it near to the fisheries of Newfoundland and the trade of the West Indies, but also to the fact that the Golden Belt, which, with but few interruptions, forms a band of fertility along the coast has supported a denser population than the sterile granitic soils of the interior, while the sea nearby varied and enriched the diet of the inhabitants by its abundance of fish, and in its slimy seaweed yielded a valuable fertilizer for their gardens. The small but countless alluvial deposits at the fjord heads in Norway, aided by the products of the sea, are able to support a considerable number of people, 
hence the narrow coastal rim of that country shows always a density of population double or quadruple that of the next density belt toward the mountainous interior, and contains 17 out of Norway's 19 towns having more than 5.000 inhabitants. It is this relative fertility of the coastal regions, as opposed to the sterile interior, that has brought so large a part of Norway's people in contact with the Atlantic and helped give them a prominent place in maritime history. Occasionally uninferred and sparsely inhabited littoral bordering a limited zone of singular productivity, especially if favorably located for international trade, will develop marked maritime activity, both in trade and commercial colonization, such was Arabian Yemen, the home of the ancient Saudians on the Red Sea, stretching from the Straits of Bab el-Mandeb northwestward for 500 miles, here a mountain range rising to 10.000 feet and bordering the plateau desert of Central Arabia, condenses the vapors of the summer monsoon and creates a long-drawn oasis, where terraced coffee gardens and orchards blossom in the irrigated soil, but the arid coastal strip at its feet, harboring a sparse population only along its tricking streams, developed a series of considerable ports as outlets for the abundant products and crowded population of the highlands a location on the busy sea lane leading from the Indian Ocean to the Mediterranean, near the meeting place of three continents, made the merchants of the Yemen coast, like the Oman Arabs to the north, middlemen in the trade of Europe with Eastern Africa and India. Therefore, even in the second century these Saudians had their trading stations scattered along the east coast of Africa as far south as Zanzibar. In 1502 Vasco Diagama found Arabs, either of Oman or Yemen, yet farther south in Sofala the port for the ivory and gold trade, some of them he employed as pilots to steer his course to India. History makes one fact very plain, a people who dwell by the sea, and to whom nature applies some lash to drive them out upon the deep, command opportunity for practically unlimited expansion. In this way small and apparently ill-favored strips of the earth's surface have become the seats of wide maritime supremacy and colonial empire. The scattered but extensive seaboard possession of Little Venice and Genoa in the latter centuries of the Middle Ages are paralleled in modern times by the large overseas dominions of the English and Dutch. Seaward expansions of peoples are always of great moment and generally of vast extent, whether they are the coastward movements of inland peoples to get a foothold upon the great oceanic highway of trade and civilization, as has been the case with the Russians notably since the early 18th century and with numerous interior tribes of West Africa since the opening of the slave trade, or whether they represent the more rapid and extensive coastwise and overseas expansions of maritime nations like the English, Dutch, and Portuguese. In either event they give rise to a widespread displacement of peoples and a bizarre arrangement of race elements along the coast. When these two contrary movements meet, the shock of battle follows, as the recent history of the Russians and Japanese in Manchuria and Korea illustrates. The wars of Swedes and Russians for the possession of the Eastern Baltic littoral, and the numerous minor conflicts that have occurred in Upper Guinea between European commercial powers and the would-be trading tribes of the bordering hinterland, a coast region is a peculiar habitat, inasmuch as it is more or less dominated by the sea. It is exposed to inundation by tidal wave and to occupation by immigrant fleets. It may be the base for outgoing maritime enterprise or the goal of some overseas movement the dispenser or the recipient of colonists. The contrast between coast dwellers and the nearby inland people which exists so widely can be traced not only to a difference of environment, but often to a fundamental difference of race or tribe caused by immigration to accessible shores. The Greeks, crowded in their narrow peninsula of limited fertility, 
woven Hellenic border on the skirts of the Black Sea and Eastern Mediterranean lands, just as the Carthaginians added a fringe of aliens to North Africa, where the Punic people of the coast presented a marked contrast to the Berbers of the interior. See map page 251. An ethnographical map of Russia today shows a narrow but almost continuous rim of Germans stretching from the river Neman north through the Baltic coast of Kurland, Livland, and Estland, as far as Revel, and again, a similar band of Swedes along the seaboard of Finland, from a point east of Helsingfors on the south around to Uliaborg on the north, dating from the time when Finland was a political dependency of Sweden and influenced by the fact that the frozen gulf of Bothnia every winter makes a bridge of ice between the two shores. See map page 225. Everywhere in the Melanesian archipelago, where Papuans and Malays dwell side by side, the latter as the newcomers are always found in possession of the coast, while the darker aborigines have withdrawn into the interior. So in the Philippines, the aboriginal Negritos, pure or more often mixed with Malayan blood, as in the main giant tribe of central Mindoro, are found crowded back into the interior by the successive invasions of Malays who have encircled the coasts. See map page 147. The Zambonga Peninsula of Mindanao has an inland pagan population of primitive Malayan race called Sabanan, who have been displaced from the littoral by the seafaring Sabalmoros, Mohammedanized Malays from the east shores of Sumatra and the adjacent islands who spread northward about 1300 under the energizing impulse of their new religion. Even at so late a date as the arrival of Magellan, the Sabanon seem to have still occupied some points of the coast, just as the Savagenos of the island of Yizo touched the sea about Sapporo only 40 years ago, though they are now surrounded by a seaboard rim of Japanese. If we turn to South America, we find that warlike Tupi, at the time of the discovery, occupied the whole Brazilian coast from the southern tropic north to eastern Guiana, while the highlands of eastern Brazil immediately in their rear were populated by tribes of Gs, who had been displaced by the coastwise expansion of the Tupi Canoeman. See map page 101. And today the same belt of coastland has been appropriated by a foreign population of Europeans and Negroes, while the vast interior of Brazil shows a predominance of native Indian stocks only broken here and there by a lonely enclave of Portuguese settlement. The early English and French territories in America presented the same contrast of coast and inland people the colonists planting themselves on the hem of the continent to preserve maritime connection with the home countries. The aborigines forced back beyond reach of the tide, wherever an energetic seafaring people with marked commercial or colonizing bent make a highway of the deep. They give rise to this distinction of coast and inland people on whatever shores they touch. The expanding Angles and Saxons did it in the North Sea and the Channel, where they stretched their Latus Saxonicum faintly along the coast of the continent to the apex of Brittany, and firmly along the hem of England from Southampton water to the Firth of Forth. The seabred Scandinavians did it farther north in the Teutonic fringe of settlements which they placed on the shores of Celtic Scotland and Ireland. As a rule it is the newcomers who hold the coast, but occasionally the coast dwellers represent the older ethnic stock. In the Balkan Peninsula today the descendants of the ancient Hellenes are, with few exceptions, confined to the coast. The reason is to be found in the fact that the Slavs and other northern races who had intruded by successive invasions from the plains of southern Russia are primarily inland peoples, and therefore have occupied the core of the peninsula, forcing the original Greek population before them to the edge of the sea. This is the same anthropogeographical process which makes so many peninsulas the last halting place of a dislodged earlier race. 
but the Greeks who line the northern and western shores of Asiatic Turkey are such only in language and religion, because their prevailing broadhead form shows them to be Turks and Armenians in race stock. Sometimes the distinction of race between coast and interior is obliterated so far as language and civilization are concerned, but survives less conspicuously in head form and pigmentation. The outermost fringe of the Norwegian coast, from the extreme south to the latitude of Trondheim in the north, is occupied by a broad-headed, round-faced, rather dark people of only medium height, who show decided affinities with the alpine race of Central Europe, and who present a marked contrast to the tall narrow-headed blondes of pure Teutonic type, constituting the prevailing population from the inner edge of the coast eastward into Sweden, this brachycephalic, Uengermanic stock of the Norwegian seaboard seems to represent the last stand made by that once widespread alpine race, which here has been shoved along to the rocky capes and islands of the outer edge by a later Teutonic immigration coming from Sweden. So the largest continuous area of Negrito stock in the Philippines is found in the Sierra Madre Mountains defining the eastern coast of northern Luzon, facing the neighborless wastes of the Pacific, whence no new settler could come turned away from the sources of Malay immigration to the southwest, its location made it a retreat, rather than a gateway to incoming races, see map page 147, where an immigrant population from overseas lands occupies the coastal hem of a country, rarely do they preserve the purity of their race, coming at first with marauding or trading intent, they bring no women with them, but institute their trading stations or colonies by marriage with the women of the country. The ethnic character of the resultant population depends upon the proportion of the two constituent elements, the nearness or remoteness of their previous kinship, and the degree of innate race antagonism. The ancient Greek elements which crossed the Aegean from different sections of the peninsula to colonize the Ionian coast of Asia Minor mingled with the native Carian, Cretan, Lydian, Pelasgian, and Phoenician populations which they found there, on all the barbarian shores where the Greeks established themselves. There arose a mixed race in Celtic Massilia, in Libyan Barca, and in Scythian Crimea but always a race Hellenized, born interpreters and mercantile agents, a maritime people, engrossed chiefly with the idea of trade, moves in small groups and intermittently, hence it modifies the original coastal population less than does a genuine colonizing nation, especially as it prefers the smallest possible territorial base for its operations. The Arab element in the coast population of East Africa is strongly represented, but not so strongly as one might expect after a thousand years of intercourse, because it was scattered in detached seaboard points, only a few of which were really stable. The native population of Zanzibar and Pembra and the fringe of coast tribes on the mainland opposite are clearly tinged with Arab blood. The Swahili, as they are called, are a highly mixed race, as their Negro element has been derived not only from the local coast peoples, but also from the slaves who for centuries have been halting here on their seaward journey from the interior of Africa. See map page 105. Coast peoples tend to show something more than the hybridism resulting from the mingling of two stocks. So soon as the art of navigation developed beyond its initial phase of mere coastwise travel, and began to strike out across the deep, all coast peoples bordered upon each other, and the sea became a common waste boundary between, and like a land boundary which is in general accessible from only two sides and tends to show, therefore, only two constituent elements in its border population. A sea boundary is accessible from many directions with almost equal ease, it therefore draws from many lands, and gives its population a variety of ethnic elements and a cosmopolitan stamp. This, however, 
is most marked in great seaports, but from them it penetrates into the surrounding country, the whole southern and eastern coast population of England, from Cornwall to the Wash, received during Elizabeth's reign valuable accessions of industrious Flemings and Huguenots, refugees from Catholic persecution in the Netherlands and France, our North Atlantic states, whose population is more than half 50.9%, made up of aliens and natives born of foreign parents, have drawn these elements from almost the whole circle of Atlantic shores, from Norway to Argentine and from Argentine to Newfoundland, even the southern states, so long and attractive to immigrants on account of the low status of labor, show a fringe of various foreign elements along the Gulf Coast, the deeper tint of which on the census maps fades off rapidly toward the interior. The same phenomenon appears with Asiatic and Australian elements in our Pacific seaboard states, the cosmopolitan population of New York, with its Chinatown, its Little Italy, its Russian and Hungarian quarters, has its counterpart in the mixed population of Muscat, peopled by Hindu, Arabs, Persians, Kurds, Afghans, and Baluchis, settled here for purposes of trade, or in the equally mongrel inhabitants of Ogden and Zanzibar, of Marseille, Constantinople, Alexandria, Portsmouth, and other Mediterranean ports. The cosmopolitanism and the commercial activity that characterize so many seaboards are reflected in the fact that, with rare exceptions, it is the coast regions of the world that give rise to a lingua franca or lingua geral. The original lingua franca arose on the coast of the Levant during the period of Italian commercial supremacy there. It consisted of an Italian stock, on which were grafted Greek, Arabic, and Turkish words, and was the regular language of trade for French, Spanish, and Italians. It is still spoken in many Mediterranean ports, especially in Smyrna, and in the early part of the 19th century was in use from Madagascar to the Philippines, from the coastal strip of the Zanzibar Arabs, recently transferred to German East Africa. The speech of the Swahili has become a means of communication over a great part of East Africa, from the coast to the Congo and the sources of the Nile. It is a Bantu dialect permeated with Arabic and Hindu terms and sparsely sprinkled even with English and German words. Pigeon English, Business English performs the function of a lingua franca in the ports of China and the Far East. It is a jargon of corrupted English with a slight mixture of Chinese, Malay, and Portuguese words, arranged according to the Chinese idiom. Another mongrel English does service on the coast of New Guinea. The nigger English of the West African trade is a regular dialect among the natives of the Sierra Leone coast. Farther east along the Upper Guinea littoral, the Igbo family of tribes who extend across the Niger Delta from Lagos to Old Calabar have furnished a language of trade in one of their dialects, the Tupi speech of the Brazilian coast Indians, with whom the explorers first came into contact, became, in the mouth of Portuguese traders and Jesuit missionaries, the lingua geral or medium of communication between the whites and the various Indian tribes throughout Brazil, the Chinook Indians, located on our Pacific coast north and south of the Columbia River, have furnished a jargon of Indian, French, and English words which serves as a language of trade throughout a long stretch of the northwest Pacific coast, not only between whites and Indians, but also between Indians of different linguistic stocks. The coast is the natural habitat of the middlemen. One strip of seaboard produces a middlemen people, and then sends them out to appropriate other literals. If geographic conditions are favorable, otherwise it is content with the transit trade of its own locality. It breeds essentially a race of merchants, shunning varied production, nursing monopoly by secrecy and every method to crush competition. 
the profits of trade attract all the free citizens, and the laboring class is small or slave. Expansion landward has no attraction in comparison with the seaward expansion of commerce. The result is often a relative dearth of local land-grown foodstuffs. King Hiram of Tyre, in his letter to King Solomon, promised to send him trees of cedar and cypress, made into a rafts and conveyed to the coast of Philistia, and asked in return for grain, which we stand in need of because we inhabit an island. The pay came in the form of wheat, oil, and wine, but Solomon furnished a considerable part of the laborers 30.000 of them who were sent, 10.000 at a time, to Mount Lebanon to cut the timber, apparently under the direction of the more skillful Sidonian foresters. A type of true coast traders is found in the duelas of the German Cumberland, at the inner angle of the Gulf of Guinea, located along the lower course and delta of the Mungo River where it flows into the Cumberland estuary. They command a good route through a mountainous country into the interior. This they guard jealously, excluding all competition, monopolizing the trade, and imposing a transit duty on all articles going to and from the interior. They avoid agriculture so far as possible. Their women and slaves produce an inadequate supply of bananas and yams, but crops needing much labor are wholly neglected, so that their coasts have a reputation for dearness of provisions. Along the 4.500 miles of West African coast between the Senegal and the Cunana rivers the Negro's natural talent for trade has developed special tribes, who act as intermediaries between the interior and the European stations on the seaboard. Among these we find the Bayanos and Banda of Portuguese Banguela, who fit out whole caravans for the back country, the Portuguese of Luanda rely on the Embatistas and the Mbunda middlemen. The slave trade particularly brought a sinister and abnormal activity to these seaboard tribes, just as it did to the East Coast tribes, and stimulated both in the exploitation of their geographic position as middlemen. The Alaskan coast shows the same development. The Kinak Indians at the head of Cook's Inlet buy skins of land animals from the inland at the Paskins at the sources of the Copper River, and then make a good profit by selling them to the American traders of the coast. These same Athapascans for a long time found a similar body of middlemen in the Agalants at the mouth of the Copper River, till the America, 